Now let's let's turn to the fourth chapter of James. We want to continue our our studies in this book. Uh, in many ways, uh, reading the, the book of James is like hitting yourself over the head with a hammer. It, uh, it feels so good when you quit. Uh, James has a kind of ruthless, brutal, uh, frontal, straightforward honesty about him that uh, tends to shake us up. James uh, is very much like the, uh, the little boy in the emperor's new clothes or I suppose like Howard Cassell, he just tells it like it really is. And sometimes it's hurt, it hurts, but uh, that kind of honesty is, is helpful. Uh, I have a 13-year-old, as you know, who's legendary for his, his honesty. And <laughs> The other day, um, uh, some friends came over that we were going to have dinner with. They were going to pick us up. And uh, Josh comes to the front door, and he says to our friends, uh, You'll have to wait a few minutes. My mom and dad are back in the bedroom having an argument. <laughs> it's humbling, but uh, that kind of honesty is, uh, is very helpful. And that's the sort of thing that, that, you, that you encounter in, in the book of James. As a case in point, uh, read the uh, 11th and 12th verses of chapter, chapter 4. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judges your neighbor? The uh, theme of chapter 4 is... uh, is the is the same as the proverb? It's only by pride that contention uh, that contention comes. As you know from our uh, our prior studies in chapter four, James, uh, his conviction is that war and conflict and stress and dis- distress, struggle uh, within the human race is the result of pride and this terrible self-assertive spirit that manifests itself in in destructive ways. It's something that uh, is as old as the fall. Uh, Satan uh, slithered up to to Eve and uh, said, uh, "Do do you realize that you can be like God? And Eve thought, well, now that's a pretty good idea. I hadn't thought about that. And she went to Adam and said, do you realize that we can be like God? And Adam fell for that same line, and, and the whole human race fell. And ever since, we've had this, this crazy idea that, that the whole world centers on us, that we're the middle of everything. And uh, people can't, uh, they can't do anything without getting our permission. And we have the right to correct everyone else and, and their, their lifestyle, their manner of living. And, and James says, who, who do you think you are to judge another? There's only one judge, and, and that's God. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge. He's the only, only one who has the right to sit in judgment on us. 
And, and furthermore, he says, when you sit in judgment on a brother, when you gossip about another or you criticize another or you slander another, you're sitting in judgment on the, uh, on the law. The law is intended to sit in judgment on us, but when we correct the law or modify it or change it in some way, we're acting as though we're God, the lawgiver, changing the rules in, in the middle of the game. The, the Old Testament says very clearly that we're not to gossip. In uh, Leviticus uh, 16, 19, excuse me, Leviticus 19, verse 16, the law reads, uh, You shall not slander a brother. You shall not gossip or speak against a brother. And then later on in verse 18, he says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, gossip or slander or, or speaking evil of another is a violation of the law of love, and, and it's found even in the Old Testament. We, we're inclined to not think of the Old Testament that way. The Old Testament is, is full of, of rigid law, but uh, the, the purpose of the law, we know, was to make us more loving people. And uh, one violation of the law of love is, is gossip or slander, speaking evil of another. Uh, there are very few things that, that God hates, but Proverbs says that, that God absolutely hates a gossip, uh, uh, the, the practice of gossip, not the gossiper, but the practice of gossip. And then when you move on into the New Testament, in, in Mark 7, Jesus says that gossip and slander are sins that come out of, the, out of the inner man, and they come out of the mouth, and they defile individuals and all of society. And he includes gossip with uh, what we would consider more serious sins of sex and violence. And he's, it's all in there together. It's all destructive. It's all a violation of, of the law of love. And that's why James says when we, when we gossip, when we talk about another person behind their back, we point out their sins to someone else, we bear false witness against them, we slander them, speak evil of of, of someone else that really we are setting ourselves up as judge of the law and we're saying I don't care what the law says I know better I'm I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it the way I want to do it and and I'm not going to listen to what the law says now the, the word that that James uses here for speaking against one another occurs only here in, in verse 11 in the New Testament, and in First Peter, in uh, in First Peter, it's used of non-Christians who slandered. At least in Peter's day, they slandered the behavior of Christians in order to oppress and suppress the gospel. Oppress Christians and and suppress the gospel. So uh, we have to understand there, there there is absolutely nothing Christian about about speaking against another. It's something that's absolutely forbidden to us as Christians. Don't speak against one another, brethren, he says. It couldn't be any plainer. Gossip is, is a sin. Back in uh, the 15th Psalm, the psalmist says, Who shall ascend to God's holy hill? Who will dwell in God's uh, tent? In other words, who is the friend of God? Who, who is it that's close to God? Who's near to his heart? He says it's a person who does whose feet don't shed blood, 
enumerates a number of sins, and he says someone who, uh, who doesn't slander his, his brother. And then perhaps the most, the most vivid illustration of God's attitude toward uh, the sin of gossip is in Numbers 12. Would you turn back there with me? Remarkable story. Not well known. Numbers 12. Then uh, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. If you're having trouble finding Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, it's the fourth, fourth book in the Old Testament. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman which he had married, for he had, he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Uh, the verb that's translated spoke here in, in verse 1 is feminine, which would suggest that Miriam was the ringleader in this conspiracy. She, she, for some reason, wanted to undermine Moses' authority. And so the strategy she, she developed was to undermine his character. And she did so by uh, suggesting that he was not a man of character because he had married outside of his race. The Cushites were, uh, they, they lived in the country that today is Ethiopia. So this was a black woman. And uh, Miriam knew that, that most people are, are racists at heart. And uh, simply by referring to the fact that Moses had married outside of his, his kind would uh, make... Many people question his, his authority, his, his character, and therefore his credentials as a, as a leader. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us as well? That was really her, that's what she had in mind. She, she wanted, she and, and Aaron, who was the other prophet, or who was the priest, rather, she was a prophetess, wanted to be in a position of leadership. And uh, the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very, very humble, very meek is the word, very non-defensive. More than any, any other man who was on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you, you three come out to the tent of medium, meeting. So the three of them came out. It, it would be a scary thing to be called on the carpet before God. He said, I want to have a word with you three. Calls them out front of the tent of meeting. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my word. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in dreams. But not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I will speak mouth to mouth. That is, personally. Even openly and not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against? And this is the same word that uh, James uses, uh, the, the, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses the same word that James uses in, in chapter 4, which, which leads me to believe that he may have had in mind this incident. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and, and he laughed. The Shekinah departed, the cloud over the tabernacle, which was the visible manifestation of God in the midst of his people, left. 
But uh, when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. And, and Aaron looked at Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Now, she was, she was miraculously cured. She was healed through Moses' intercession. But uh, the point was made very vividly that, that uh, if we judge others, we're likely to be judged. fitting symbol, perhaps, of gossip than leprosy is such a loathsome, ugly disease. It so uh, disfigures and destroys and, and affects others who come in contact with it. I, it seems to me that this is simply an illustration of the way God looks at, at gossip. It's like leprosy. It doesn't appear to be, you know, we don't think of it as a very serious thing, but it it's, a, it's an awful, ugly disease, which if it could be seen, would look like leprosy. It's something to be avoided like, like the plague. Very vivid illustration of, of Jesus' promise, his command and promise, judge not that, that you be not judged. The rabbis used to... Uh, that, that gossip is the third tongue. It kills three people. It kills the person who speaks. It kills the person spoken about. And it, and it slays the person spoken to. That is the effect that, that gossip has on, us, on it. We're looking. We're all guilty of it. I am. Don't look so pious. You are too. You know you are. It's so easy to slip into this practice of just talking about people, and, and we can, you know, we can present it in a, in, in such a, a, a tasteful way. We sanctify it by saying, "Well, so and so, we must pray for him." Jesus says we ought to go. To, we should never talk about someone else who's struggling. Jesus said, if you see your brother overtaken in a fault, go to him and win your brother back. Same point that Paul makes in Galatians 6. Would you turn there with me? Galatians 6, verse 1. Well, let's back up a bit in the... If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The word that Paul uses that's translated means to walk together in rank and fire. Walk in a united fashion as his becoming boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. These are the, are the attitudes that destroy our walk. If a man caught in any trespass. The, the word for trespass here is a word that was used in the Roman army for walking out of step or falling out of ranks. Let's walk along together in spirit. But even if somebody does get out of step or they fall out of ranks, you who are spiritual, that is, those of you at a particular time, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The word restore was used in those days of surgeons setting bones. And it's a very apt picture, metaphor, I think, of the process of healing gently, restoring someone who, who's, who's hurting. 
someone who's who's been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. You don't you don't go in, in a spirit of self righteousness and haughtiness and pride and 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 speak harshly to your brother. You're you're gentle. You who are walking along in the spirit, who at this particular time have not fallen by the wayside, you restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. That verse 2 goes with verse 1. That's the way we bear one another's burdens. You see someone overtaken in a fault, don't go talk to someone else about that brother. Go to the brother. Talk to him. Share your concern with him. Do it with love and with compassion and in a redemptive way. Oh, yeah healthy this body would be if, if we'd operate that way. If we just simply refuse to talk about one another. And, and if we see a, a brother or sister who's struggling, could be anyone. Could be a leader. Could be me. Could be anyone of teaching or leading or serving within the body of Christ and you see them failing. And instead of going to someone else and talking about them, go to them. And to use... Jesus' wonderful symbolism, wash their feet. You know, you don't stick their feet in a tub of boiling water, and you don't wash their feet in ice-cold water. You just gently and warmly and with great compassion and with great awareness of our own inclination to fall the next time around. You may be on the receiving end. It may be your brother who's washing your feet. What a healthy thing that would be for this body if we'd, we'd carry out that kind of loving, redemptive action toward one another. Just refuse to talk about anyone for any reason. And instead, go to their... Well, that's the, uh, that's the first manifestation of this uh, self-assertive spirit that James describes. We need to humble ourselves and and not uh, not speak against another. Now, there's a second manifestation of it in verses 13 through 17. Such and such a city, and spend a year there, and engage in business, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, he's not saying it's sinful here to uh, work hard. Uh, laziness is a sin. Indolence is a sin. Uh, Apostles have some hard things to say about people that won't work. It's a different thing if you can't work, but if you won't work, that's that's a sin. But it's not a it's not a sin to work hard. It's not a sin to uh, to make profit. It's not a sin to plan and and scheme and think about uh, the future. And uh, it's not a sin to go on business trips. Although I wish. Uh, I imagine some of you wives wish that it were. What James is saying here is that, that it's a sin to plan and scheme and think and prepare and, 
and not take God into consideration. Our tendency is to be uh, practically atheists in the way we approach life. We, we chart our course, we lay out our five-year plan, we know exactly where we're going to be five years from now, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we do so without reference to God. We don't give him the time of day. We don't even think that he has the right to alter the plan. Nor do we think, uh, do we realize how, how tenuous life is by what a slender thread it hangs. You know, anything could happen to you today that would, that would alter your life radically. And our tendency is to plan as though, these, you know, as though we're immortal or as though circumstances can't touch us. Uh, some microscopic virus can strike you down and today and, and paralyze you for the rest of your life or take your life. Or someone over whom you have no control can make some decision that, uh, that radically affects the, the course of your life. Or just some dumb decision that you might make can affect the course of, of your life. Uh, you know, life is just too complex. There are all sorts of problems. We don't we don't know how to handle these things. Um, Malcolm Anderson tells a story about uh, a skydiver that jumped out of the airplane, and as he was falling, his lines got tangled, and he was dropping at a tremendous rate of speed. And as he fell, he was surprised to see a another man going up. And he said, hey, he said, do you know how to fix a parachute? And the guy says, no, do you know how to fix a Coleman stove? <laughs> and that's, uh, that's the way life is, you know. All these exigencies in life, uh, emergencies, these things that we don't know how to, how to handle and, and control. And, and life just... Uh, I was in Seattle with before last, and uh, we were on that long stretch uh, just south of Spokane. You know, it's just straight as a string. You can see for miles down the highway headed toward the river, and it was raining like crazy. I could just barely see the front of the car, and the wind was blowing. And I'd been behind a semi for about three or four miles, and I was tired, and I was getting impatient, and he was driving about 40 miles an hour, and he was throwing rain all over the car. There's just that long... I pulled out beside him, and Yoda just... And just about halfway past the semi, and I looked up, and there was the, a yellow line in my side of the pavement, and I knew where we were. The up on, and I realized what I had done. I was in the wrong place, and I, I time we were starting up grade, and the car just wouldn't go, and and I, I, I started thinking, do I have any unconfessed sin that I need to? <laughs> Carolyn, we just made it around, and I just just as quickly as I could into the right lane, and about fifteen or twenty seconds later. Here Had I been, been 30 minutes late, 30 seconds later, or had he been 30 seconds earlier, we would have met right on that corner. Life is like that. And, you know, all of you, you've, you've had falling in the river. 
sorts of things. It's just crazy for us to think that we can. It's so normal for us to plan that we don't even think of it as sin. That's, That's what James is saying. In verse Say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do, do this or that. We have, to, we have to reckon upon the sovereignty of God. It's, it's God who controls our life. We, as the saying is, we may propose, but it's God who disposes. Or as the proverb puts it, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purposes of God that are established. He has the right to control our lives. And so whenever we make our five-year plans, we need to say, this is what I want, nevertheless. It's not what I want, but, but what God wills. Now, this is not some glib saying. It's not, not intended to be a cliche, as we often use it. We ought to mean it. It's not important even that we say it, but we ought to recognize it. That it's, it's God who makes these choices for us. And to think otherwise, he says, is arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Isn't that interesting? We're so used to planning, we don't even think of planning without God as, as evil. But he says, the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. To make our way through life without giving God the time of day, without including him in our plans, without submitting ourselves to his will, he says, is, is sin. Um. As most of you know, uh, Carolyn and I went to Hawaii this past summer for a couple of weeks, and one week of that trip was spent uh, teaching in a, in a largely Japanese church in Honolulu. And my friend Lee Yi, who was the interim pastor of that church over the summer, briefed me on certain cultural things so I wouldn't uh, uh, do something uh, insensitive while I was working with these Japanese families. So I, I thought I was pretty well up on, uh, on uh, what was uh, polite and, and culturally uh, discreet. But uh, we went to a Bible study one night in a lovely, lovely Japanese home. And as uh, uh, Lee explained to me, the uh, man who, who whose family lived there, Stan Shota, was from a samurai tradition. And though he was a businessman in Honolulu and very much a 20th century man, he had a lot of the, uh, of the old traditions that were, uh, that were important to Japanese. So I went into the Bible study and just kind of clumped my way into the living room and sat down, and I knew a number of the people in the room, so I started chatting with them, and I noticed that there was a little bit of, of tension in the room, but I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it's just that I was the only Caucasian there. And after a few minutes, Lee leaned over and said, Dummy, take off your shoes. <laughs> and uh, if you know anything about Japanese culture, they don't wear their shoes in the house. They take them off at the front door. And there I was, this gross North American with my, with my shoes on, walking through their house. And as soon as I took my shoes off, uh, sort of bowed my way out of the room, excused myself, took the shoes off and apologized. Everything was all right. They forgave me and... And we went on from there. And uh, I was thinking about it afterward. It's so, it's so common for me to wear shoes in the house, I don't even think about it. But he had told me you don't wear shoes in a Japanese house. I knew that. I just needed to be reminded. And that's what James is doing for us here. 
Uh, gossip is so much a part of our culture that we, we don't think about it as sin. And uh, planning without God is so much a part of our tradition and, and our, our thinking that we don't realize it's sin. But James gives us this gentle reminder. We know. We know. And we need to take it seriously. It's not a small thing. It's very important. It's good, I think, that we're celebrating communion this morning and we want to center the rest of our time around the Lord's table because uh, this, uh, this meal, this symbolic meal, reminds us of the fact that even though we are sinful, we're forgiven. We walk in a forgiven state. Who of us can look back on this past week and say that we've not been uh, slanderous in things that we've said or we... We haven't talked about someone behind their back, or we haven't uh, made some plans and decisions without thinking of God's rights, his prerogatives in our lives. We're all sinful people, but that's okay. Uh, It's not okay to sin. That's why the scriptures are written, so we can know what is sin, but it's, it's good to know that we're okay as far as God is concerned doesn't look for perfection. looks for progress. It is, as someone said, God's duty to forgive because uh, it's all based on the cross, but it's also his desire. He wants to forgive, and he does forgive on the basis of the sacrifice that's been made. And so, actually, we all sit here right now. If, if we have come to the cross and accepted Christ's forgiveness, we sit here in a forgiven state. We're forgiven for sins past, present, and future. But our own hearts sometimes get defiled, and we feel guilty, and therefore we need to straighten things up with the Lord. That's a good exercise for all of us, and particularly as we center our thinking around this this table. To search our own hearts and ask ourselves where we violated the law of love and, and let God know that we're sorry and thank him for the forgiveness that he's provided. In the Old Testament, there was the uh, practice on the Day of Atonement of, of sacrificing a number of, of different animals, two of which were, were goats. They uh, cast lots over the goats. One goat was offered as a sin offering. The other was designated as, uh, as the scapegoat. And the sins of the nation, representing the individual, were confessed over the head of the goat, and then someone took the uh, goat out into the desert and and lost it. The uh, word scapegoat that translates the term in the Old Testament for this particular animal is really not accurate. We're not quite sure what the word means, but it probably means something like lostness, something that's, that's forsaken. And uh, that's what God does with our sin. It's a, it's a wonderful picture of God taking our sin out into the wilderness and losing it. And he says, don't go out and try to find it. It's forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So as we eat this uh, bit of bread, remember it symbolizes our Lord's body, which was given for us, so we can be forgiven. Let's eat it together. Thank you, Father, for removing from us all of our transgressions. 
all of the things we've done this past week, which we regret so, uh, so deeply. We thank you that every day is a new day. The slate is clean, and life is new. We are repeatedly made new creatures in Christ Jesus with a fresh start, a new beginning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This cup, as Jesus tells us, represents the offering up of his blood. He referred to it as, the, as symbolizing the blood of the new covenant. In the 20th chapter of Acts, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus in the last message he gave to them that the church is a very precious thing because God purchased it with his own blood. What, what scripture means when it says Christ shed his blood for us is that he gave up his life for us. And that life which he gave was the perfect, infinite life of God. That's really what the cross means. It was God's life that was given up for us. So we can have his life. That's what it means to take this cup together. It's, a, it's participating in, it's sharing in that, that offer of life in Christ. Let's take it together. Father, we, um, we thank you that we can say and say with real assurance that it is well with our soul, regardless of, the, of our circumstances, our present struggles, our past failure. We, uh, we have all that it takes to uh, live life and um, to live it in, in power and in strength. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.